to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. This is the first part of a series on meekness and humility, which is intended to go deeper than mere words and definitions. The hope is to give you the chance to get a feel for the underlying state of being associated with meekness and humility, so you can resonate with these attributes and bring them into your life. We encourage you to pause and ponder on any examples of meekness and humility that come to mind as you listen, including nature, scriptures, and or examples from your own life. We hope these episodes are meaningful and relevant to everyone's hope and desire for Zion. Meekness is a difficult attribute to recognize. It's found in the relationship between man and God, not between man and man. To be meek is to follow the Lord's will, even when one doesn't want to do so, even when it brings one into conflict with friends, family, or community. Meekness is measured as between the servant and the Lord, not as between the servant and his critics. Meekness, among other things, involves a conscious effort to avoid harming or offending others. It requires an absence of pride or self-will. It is not insistent upon being recognized or applauded. It denotes a willingness to suffer without complaint. Others may never recognize the meek because meekness does not vaunt itself nor demand notice. There's great freedom in meekness. It relieves the meek from the burden of seeking their acclaim. It gives them the security of feeling God's approval for the course of their living. It's private. Meekness means a person voluntarily restrains himself and uses the absolute minimum control or authority over others. It is related to humility. Humility is voluntarily submitting to the control or power of God, in other words, obedience. Meekness affects a person's relationship with his fellow man. There's nothing showy or attention-grabbing about the meek. Instead, they're content to know they have a relationship and power with God. Unless God requires something to be done or revealed, the meek do not voluntarily put this authority on display. Our Lord was and is meek. When he said, I am more intelligent than them all. When he said, I am the greatest of all. There wasn't one whit of arrogance in his announcement of that. What he was saying is, please have confidence in me. Please trust what I say to be true. Please recognize I've paid a price in order to be able to minister. Christ in Luke chapter 9 Beginning at verse 27, Christ prophesies. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. That's the latter-day kingdom. That's the one that Christ said was not of this world, that he's going to come and inherit at the end. So he says, Some of you who are alive today will not die until you see Zion. The gymnastics that have gone into trying to explain that by both Christian, Catholic, and even Mormon um, commentators is rather amusing. Keep keep reading, though. And it came to pass about and eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So he says, some are living, they're not gonna die until they see the kingdom of heaven. And then he takes those three up on the mount and they see some things. Turn to um, Doctrine and Covenants section 63. Beginning, and he's talking about Zion. 
beginning at verse uh, 20 of section 63. Nevertheless, he that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome and shall receive an inheritance upon the earth when the day of transfiguration shall come, when the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount, of which account the fullness ye have not yet received. He promised them that they would get to see the latter-day triumph. He took three of them up on the mountain and he showed them the latter-day triumph. Therefore, there were those that were standing in that generation who did not die until they had seen the latter-day triumph of the kingdom of God. He fulfilled his own word and it was put into the gospel in that fashion for that reason. It will happen. But it requires an awakening and it requires an arising. It does not require a leader. A servant, maybe. Not a leader. It does not require a president. It requires your common consent by your deeds. Not only to say, but to do. It will not be achieved by control. It will not be achieved by coercion. It will not be achieved by force. It will not be achieved because there's some big, strong man among you. It will only happen if each of you are strengthened in your faith and know the Lord. It will be achieved by humility. It will be achieved through meekness. It will be achieved by love which is unfeigned, the real thing. I don't need or want or even welcome your admiration or your praise. You're probably more admirable than am I. I'm not telling you these things because I can do these things. I'm telling you these things because this is what the Lord would have us do. He's told us what's on his mind, and here it is. It's laid out for us. The question is not who's great and noble and going to stroll in there. The question is who's meek, who's humble, who's appreciative of their inadequacies, who's willing to say, when I count up all my foibles and failings and I look at them, I don't think I have any ground upon which to criticize anyone else. Well, uh, King Benjamin had something to, to say about the, the character of a child. And he gets this in his big uh, talk at the beginning of Mosiah where they're all together for his farewell address. Uh, this is Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19. Um, the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam, will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. And put it off the natural man, and becometh a saint to the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child. Then he elaborates what it is about the child that is so useful in um, yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, putting off the natural man, becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ. All of those are driven by these kinds of characteristics, which are childlike, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. Those are the characteristics of a child that manages change their mind um, or to facilitate their development. Well, there was a time, there was a time, it was back here in your life, there was a time when um, 
you did not need to go down to the, the firing range and have a skeet machine firing off a clay pigeon and a 12 gauge loaded with birdshot in it to be able to enjoy yourself if you had a stick. If you had a stick, it was enough because your mind was alive with the kinds of things that allowed you to have just as much, if not more, joy pretending as does the adult with the gun and the ammunition and the skeet range and the machine and the clay pigeon and the thing blowing up in the air and who isn't that fun? Uh, don't you wish there was more of that from Hollywood? <coughs> Too bad they can't blow the blood in clay pigeon. Then we'd all be out firing. <laughs> the um, the idea of submissiveness is is another way of reckoning into the idea of openness. Um, the same with meekness. The same with humility and being humble. The same with patience. And, and we ought to clarify the point about a child and patience because at, at first blush, you look at a child and you say there's nothing less patient than a child. Can we, can we, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can, can I, can I, can I, please, 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 are you sure? Are you sure? Oh, yeah. Crap, how does this work? Can I, can I, can I? Okay. What if I give this? Can I get that? So they go through all of the tantrum stuff and then they begin to negotiate. And sometimes that negotiation thing works, particularly for kids who are bright. And we've been playing with really bright kids, so they, they tend to go and negotiate everything. They are not um, patient in that sense. They are children are patient in the sense that um, relentlessly, endlessly, they are studying to learn more. They want to know more. I, I write um, I write a blog and on it I ask more questions than I, than I give answers because the, what people need are not a bunch of answers. An answer is in the discussion. Once you've got the answer, that's the end of that. What you need is a question. And you need a question so that you open your mind. You need to open your mind so that you become like a child. And you need to become like a child so that you're a suitable environment in which revelation can take place. And you need to have revelation take place in order for you to reconnect with heaven. And you need to reconnect with heaven so that you get to know who God is. And you need to get to know who God is so that he can, in turn, make you a member of his own household and redeem you from this current flight in which you find yourself in darkness and distrust. And what people want from me are answers. And I can hand you an answer and cripple you. Or I can teach you to ask and, and turn you into potentially someone that can make this trek backward, that can make this climb. Look, strip yourselves of jealousies and fears. Humble yourselves before me. You're not sufficiently humble. Let's learn from their failure. Let's not repeat it. Why do we need to keep plowing the same line over and over through the same rocky soil when no fruit has ever yielded from that particular furrow. Strip yourselves. Don't envy those who sit in the chief seats. They're rather to be pitied. Gain your own grace with God as Moroni asks you to do. God alone decides when where and how he will reveal himself to you. Look at DNC 88, verse 68. Therefore, sanctify yourselves. You have to rise up to accomplish that. Sanctify yourselves by your stripping of jealousies and envies, by your humility before him. That sanctifies yourself because you become disconnected from this place that your minds become single to God.
single to God, meaning that he occupies a place of priority in which he is central to you. Not that you neglect your family, you can't do that. Not that you neglect your labors, you cannot do that. But I have to tell you, some of the people that are driven in desperation to try and improve their circumstances that are sitting downstairs, if ministered to in a kindly way, some of those people have a, a heart that is better prepared for receiving the truth, more tender and poignant because of the circumstances of their life than are the hearts of many of us who in our plenty and in our conceit about our own goodness think ourselves better than them. When the truth of the matter is, more than anything else, it is our humility that qualifies us. More than anything else, it is our sincere apprehension of just how weak, how vulnerable, how easily distracted we are. Think about what it means to have the power of God. Think about what it means for God to be able to do all things, including sustaining you from moment to moment by lending you breath. And then for God to say, you are free to choose to do with what he's lending to you, whatever it is that you choose to do. Think of the patience of our God. Think of the meekness of our God. And think about the test that you are presently taking to prove who and what you are and whether or not in the circumstances of this test, you are proving that you can be trusted to have the meekness, to have the patience, to endure in humility what will be done, to endure the abuses that God allows to take place in order to permit his children to gain experience so that in the long run, they can ultimately know the difference between good and evil and on their own choose to love the good and to stay away from the evil. You generally hail from a tradition that assures you that you're in the right way. You generally come from a tradition that says you're better than others. You are able to look down your nose at other people who stumble about in the dark because they don't have all the great truths that you have. The fact of the matter is you generally not specifically because there are some to whom this absolutely does not apply. Your hearts are right before God, but there aren't many. You've been handed this tradition and the wicked one cometh and he takes away light and truth and he does it because of the false traditions you've been handled. The greatest among us is wholly inadequate. The greatest among us can't be trusted with the power of God, not yet anyway. The greatest among us is still in need of repentance. Every one of us should walk fearfully before God, not because God isn't generous, but because what he offers can turn you into a devil. The only way to be prepared and not fall is to realize the enormous peril that you present potentially to the universe 
before you get in a position to enjoy the status that God offers to us all, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, exactly like Paul said. You need to purge, remove, reprove. This attitude we see in this man, in this account, this is the man of God. Christ may be the prototype of the saved man, but I know of no record anywhere in Scripture that exposes the heart of the real disciple of Christ as well as does this chapter expose the heart of this man. This is what we should become. This is why the Lord could open up to him. This is why this man became, in the history of the world, coming up to this moment, despite the fact the Lord came to Adam on Diamond and administered comfort to Adam in the valley of Adam on Diamond. Here, he came and showed himself as he truly was, as a preexistent spirit possessing a soul as tangible as man's and ministered to him in a way which, if you understood what it takes for a quickened being to condescend into the presence and make himself known as he does here, was an enormous sacrifice by our Lord. Verse 18, he ministered unto him, even as he ministered unto the Nephites, and all this, that this man might know that he was God because of the many great works which the Lord had shown unto him. This is how God is known, by his works. It's not the lightning show. It's not the, the shaking on the mountain. It's the, the great works that proceed forth from him. Think about what he did when he appeared under the Nephites. God introduces him three times before the people who were there were finally able to listen with their ears and hear the introduction. And then after the introduction is given, they still see him descend, and he descends dressed in white down and stands before him. Despite the introduction, despite the descent, despite him standing in front of him, what the people think is, this must be an angel. Clearly, he um, has arrived in a way that is extra human. He's, he's manifested himself being able to use the law of gravity in a way that we can't. He descends, he stands there, but none of them are overwhelmed. None of them fall, fall down and worship him. None of them do anything but look at him. He's so plain, so ordinary, so commonplace in the appearance that he makes that when they see him, they stand there and they look rather like tourists at this man dressed in white who has now appeared to them. And he says, here's who I am. He introduces himself in 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 11, three times in order to tell you who he is. Three times he talks about obeying the will of the Father, suffering the will of the Father in all things, glorifying the Father by taking upon himself the sins of the world, even standing in front of them. He bears testimony of someone greater than him. It is the humility of the individual standing in front of them and his introduction of himself in 3 Nephi that brings them to their knees. They fall down at that point and worship him because when he opens his mouth and you see what he is and who he is and what proceedeth forth out of the heart of that man, you know you are listening and looking at God indeed. 
and they fall down and they worship him. Turn to chapter four, verse seven. And in that day that they shall exercise faith in me, saith the Lord, even as the brother of Jared did, that they may become sanctified in me, then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw, even to the unfolding unto them all my revelations, saith Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, and all things that in them are. This is the ministry of the Lord. This is the comfort that he would have that he promises to bring to us. This text that we're looking at in Ether chapter 3 is probably the best single text in existence to study about gaining the knowledge of God and the process by which it is gained, but most importantly, it exposes the attitude that is possessed by the person who comes back to be redeemed. It tells you, not directly, it tells you indirectly by telling you what he did. Go thou and do likewise. Everything that you have been put through and every challenge that you have been given and every weakness that you possess have been given to you in a studied way to bring you hopefully to your knees, to bring you hopefully to feel the chastening hand of God so that you in your day, in your circumstance, can look upon that as a gift because it surely is. I give unto men weakness that they may come unto me. And if they'll humble themselves and come unto me, I'll make weak things strong. That's also, excuse me, did I just knock it? Okay. That's also in the book of Ether, and that's in an aside in which Moroni is complaining that the, the Gentiles aren't going to believe this book. The Gentiles aren't going to believe this record. They're going to say, this, this stinks. They're, they're, Ether chapter 12, verse 26. When I had said this, the Lord God spake unto, unto me, saying, Fools mock, but they shall mourn. My grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. That's an unavoidability. That's an inevitability. You stand in the presence of a just and holy being, you're going to realize your weaknesses. You're going to recognize what you lack. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. How do weak things become strong? not by fighting the battle that you're going to lose. It's by appreciating, as the brother of Jared did, the fact that none of us can come into the presence of God without feeling keenly this scripture. But it is given unto fools mock, they shall mourn. I, this is Christ speaking, I give unto men weakness, for one purpose, I give unto them weakness that they may be strong. The anvil that you're dragging around, that anvil was given to you. Don't curse it. Pray for God to come and lift it. You're never going to be able to get far carrying it anyway you may not even be able to lift it. But in the economy of God, that is a gift. It's a gift. Not for you to act upon and surrender to, but for you to fight against in humility and meekness and to say, I'm not winning. I haven't won. It goes on and on, and yet still, I fight against it. When will you finally come to him and cry out? 
when in the bitter anguish of your soul, like Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, how long must I endure this? How long do I have to suffer from the abuse of the guards? How long do I have to sit inside a gated room in a dungeon to hear stories about the rape of the people who followed me and the murder of the people that believed what I was teaching? How long did Joseph's heart break in Liberty Jail? He emerged from that ordeal a fundamentally different man than the man who went in. There are people who say, oh, yeah, and in Nauvoo, we got to carry away with all kinds of things. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. We'll talk more about this whole idea of marriage, and we'll touch upon the notion of plurality of wives. We'll brush up against that tomorrow. Look, these scriptures, these invitations, these prophecies, and this message that began in Boise and will conclude in Phoenix— this message is inviting you to do what was originally prophesied as this dispensation began that we looked at at the beginning in Boise, Idaho. The game's afoot. The challenge is underway. The opportunity is here. There was a price that had to be paid. It involved several generations. You do not kill a man like Joseph by the conspiracy of his followers without forfeiting an opportunity. But that moment has come to an end, and a new moment is upon us. And if you'll hear it, I can declare to you, in the name of our Lord, that the day of salvation has once again arrived. Have faith. Be believing. He's real. I gave you a description of his demeanor. I gave that last time, and I'm reiterating again here some of the things about his attributes. Come to him. Seek for him. Have faith in him. You have more reason to have faith and confidence in him right now than the brother of Jared did in his day to have faith and confidence in him. There's an incident that I think um, one word, one word in this incident really explains a great deal of what I have been talking about in this last installment. This is an event that occurs within the Book of Mormon that may seem otherwise quite puzzling. But now that we've looked at the Ether chapter 3 material and we go back and we look at this incident, it suddenly begins to have a connection to it. This is in Alma chapter 22. It involves Lamoni's father, the king. I want you to look at the father, beginning in verse 17 of Alma chapter 22. And it came to pass that when Aaron had said these words, the king did bow down before the Lord upon his knees. Yea, even did he prostrate himself upon the earth and cried and cried mightily, saying, it's not the words of the prayer that provoked or gathered the attention of heaven. Though the prayer is, in fact, needed, relevant, and exactly what the Lord answered. It's what came before. This is the king this is the king that can have people killed if he chooses to do so. This is the one who, like God among his people, exercises the power of life and death. This is the one who can exact from them taxes. This is the one who has absolutely no reason to do what he's doing here. 
But look what he does. He prostrates himself upon the ground and he cries out mightily. He doesn't pray. He mirrors exactly what the brother of Jared did when he approached God. In the depths of humility and in the sincerity of his heart, showing absolutely his appreciation for the difference between himself on the one hand and God on the other. Don't mistake me. I do not think it is necessary to physically engage in this kind of display. When the display is an extension of what is in the heart, that is absolutely fine. But when what is in the heart is right, it doesn't matter how it's displayed because God looketh on the inner man. This king was so overtaken by what he had heard that he was not ashamed to prostrate himself in front of the missionaries. He was not ashamed to cry out in the depths of humility. He didn't care who saw it. He didn't do this for to be seen. He didn't care that he was being seen. He did this because at that moment, that was what he was. He was seeking grace from the throne of grace. Oh God, Aaron hath told me that there is a God. And if there is a God, and if thou art God, do you see this? This isn't someone who's certain. This is someone who is convicted of his own inadequacy. It may not be that you don't know enough. It may actually be that you know too much that's wrong. It may be that what you lack, it's all going to be erased and started over anyway. If you could gaze into heaven for five minutes, you realize that people that have been writing about this stuff since the beginning of time who haven't gazed into heaven don't know what they're talking about. The suppositions and the connections, and the ideas that get floated around are not only false, many of them are offensive to God. They're not right. The board's gonna be erased. God's gonna reorder it. You're gonna see things in a completely different light when it happens. It's not that you're brilliant and a shining light of knowledge. It's what's in your heart and how has your heart been prepared? And if your heart is open to receive, I will give away all my sins to know thee, that I may be raised from the dead and be saved at the last day. And now when the king had said these words, he was struck as if he were dead. And then look what happens when he recovers, because as he was struck, as, he was, as if he were dead, he's converted. The Lord ministers to him. And in verse 23, the king stood forth and began to minister unto them. He did minister unto them in so much that his whole household were converted unto the Lord. This is what happens when converted to the Lord. You can't stand to look about you and see other people who are left in the dark. You want to invite them. Rather as Nathaniel was invited, come and see for yourself. You come to the Lord. You come and see for yourself. This little bit of skeptical praying, if there's a God, if thou art God, will you make yourself known to me? That worked. Not because this is a magic incantation. Those folks who go through ceremonies think that ceremonies have some powerful mojo, some compelling voodoo. But the purpose of the ceremony is to teach you a precept. The precept is what you ought to find within your heart. Rites and ordinances are intended to testify to a greater truth. 
It was anciently among the Jews. It is an ironic priesthood function to turn around and look at the ordinance as if it were an end in itself. It is not an end in itself. It is intended to be a symbol reminding you of some great truth concerning our God. Capstone of the ceremonies that were restored through Joseph involving a dialogue between you and the Lord in which you're brought back into his presence and then following that, you're taken away and you're sealed for eternity. Those are lofty concepts. They are powerfully portrayed in the ordinances and the rites. They are intended to convey to you the reality that all of this is possible because God does in fact intend to preserve you and all of those associations that you prize so long as they're worthy. Don't think that you lack the faith. If this king with this prayer can go to God and can ask and get an answer, that's not the impediment. The impediment is the pride of your heart, the hardness of your heart, the self-reliance that you think that you own, the traditions that bind you down, the arrogance of your heart, the unwillingness to cry out mightily to God and then to be open to receiving an answer. This was enough and you too can do enough. The Lord tells a story in uh, Mark. This is uh, Mark chapter nine. Beginning at verse 17, there's this fellow who comes to Christ and says, Master, I brought thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Um, the spirit overtakes him. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth. I spoke to thy disciples that they should cast him out. They could not. And Christ says, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? They brought the boy unto him. He saw him. Straightway the spirit tore him. He fell on the ground, wallowed, foaming. He asked the father, how long has it been since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it casteth him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on him and help us. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Straightway the father of the child cried out, cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Help thou mine unbelief. You don't need more of what you already have. Why are you here? Well, most of you. Some have come only to criticize and to gather information. Some of you in the hardness of your heart are going to come to the point where in the day of judgment, you will look back on this moment and realize, I damned myself by the hardness of my heart in the bitterness of my soul because I came to judge a man whose heart was right before God and mine was not. Your heart will be broken in that day. But look at this man whose heart was broken on this day. He cried out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I have a desire. I have a willingness. But it is so fragile. <laughs> it is so frail. I don't think it's enough. That's not the problem. Cry out, ask him. Remember his disciples who've been following him, his disciples who were his faithful followers, his disciples couldn't fix this boy. And they'd given up everything to come and follow him. Jesus healed him after the incident the disciples came to him and said, why could we not cast him out? Christ answered them, this kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Why do you have to be afflicted by 
prayer and fasting if you're a follower of the Lord in order to get to the point that you can accomplish this because you don't fall prostate crying out with tears. If this man in this condition can say, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. If this man can do this and have the Lord on his behalf work a miracle, you too can believe enough. You too can accomplish what you desire. You too can come to him. Matthew covers the same incident, but in Matthew, he picks up, um, this is Matthew chapter 17, um, beginning at verse 19. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove and nothing should be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind come not out but by prayer and fasting. Faith as a grain of mustard seed was what the Lord said they needed. The defect does not consist in the absence of faith in the Lord. The defect consists in the arrogance and hardness of the heart that prevents you from crying out in the realistic and anguish of your heart, looking to God who is trying to bring you to him. That depths of humility, that status of being someone who is utterly harmless, that condition in which you present no threat to the righteous, you are harmless as a dove. You seek only the betterment of others. That is who God is and what you must become in order for God to be able to redeem you to be like him. That's you voluntarily changing to be that person by your submission to him. Because there is no reason to give to the proud, the vain, and the warlike the ability to torment and to afflict others. There is every reason to give to someone who would ultimately be willing to give the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked and make the sun to shine on both the righteous and the wicked, the power of God, because the power of godliness consists in this kind of a heart. And in this kind of a heart, God can accomplish anything. Turn to um, Luke chapter 18, because there the Lord pretty much tells you how it is he evaluates whether someone has purified themselves before him. This is a story that the the Lord makes up in chapter 18 of Luke, um, telling um, a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, beginning of verse 10. Two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. God can only exalt the meek because only the meek can be trusted. This is what it means to sanctify yourself. Our idea of purity and Christ's idea are entirely based on different criteria. Why is meekness required of a God by a God? 
What would happen if God himself were not patient, willing to suffer abuse and be rejected? What would happen if God were egotistical? What would happen if God did not return blessings for cursings? What would happen if God were not exactly what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount? What if God did not bless those who despitefully used and abused him? What would happen if God did not submit himself to fall into the hands of wicked man, to be despised and rejected, and then to be killed in shame, hanging naked on a cross in full view of the world while people spit upon him and while they mocked him and they ridiculed him, saying, if you really are what you say you are, come down from the cross, then we will believe. Woe unto all those who say, if you really are who you say you are, when the voice of God is sounding in their ears, they would have rejected the Lord as well. They would have crucified the Lord as well. They are not his sheep because they do not hear his voice. If they were his sheep, they would hear his voice. In a letter written August 16, 1834, Joseph Smith expected Zion could be established very soon. He wrote, we have a great work to do, but little time to do it in. And if we don't exert ourselves to the utmost in gathering up the strength of the Lord's house, there remaineth a scourge. In the same letter, he reminded people in his day that so long as unrighteous acts are suffered in the church, it cannot be sanctified, neither Zion be redeemed. At the time, he considered the church to be in a languid, cold, disconsolate state. It was the opposite of the lively, confident, and happy state accompanying righteousness even when worldly circumstances are direful and the wicked seem to triumph. When doing what the Lord asks, we can be lively because he will accompany our efforts and add his strength to our labor. If we have a hope in Christ, we can be confident. If our sins have been forgiven, we have every reason to be happy. Virtue and patience are required of us every bit as much as it has been required in every age, we cannot wallow in sin nor be prideful and expect to do any better than those who have already failed. The best guard against our failure is humility, meekness, long-suffering, and patience. We must not charge ahead when the Lord has not prepared the way for us to proceed safely. There's much still to be done, but it must be done when where and how the Lord directs, and that also not in haste, because haste brings confusion resulting in pestilence, including violence and jarring contentions. From emails and phone calls I've received since my talk in Moab, it's clear that there are those who want to move now in haste. There are ambitious men who offer to lead others hastily into new paths, claiming to be so mighty and strong that they can offer great rewards in the afterlife in exchange for following them here. I offer you no such thing. You must look to Christ for forgiveness of your sins and follow his example of self-sacrifice, patience, obedience, and virtue. I can only urge you to patiently allow the true shepherd to guide us all into his pastures showing him the respect due to a redeemer. I mentioned the idea of kingship in Moab. Remember the great king Christ came not to be served, but to serve. He did not lord it over others, but he knelt to elevate them. He came as a meek and lowly servant and went about doing good. He died to save the lives of others. When he arose from the dead, he went to the Father and advocated forgiveness for those who despised and abused him. What kind of king would God send? Even if his bowels are a fountain of light and truth, and even if he were to hold the scepter of power in his hand, 
I doubt a king sent by the Lord would be markedly different than our true king. He would endure the abuse of misunderstanding, criticism, and mockery from those who refuse to understand. He would serve patiently, never asserting any claim to greatness. Joseph said in this world, the more a man is exalted, the more humble he will be if actuated by the spirit of the Lord. When such a king dies and returns to God to report, he will have only kindness for those who opposed him as he served God. We should all be like that. We should all be like our Lord. Christ's greatest commandments were simple and given to every one of us. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If we do these things, there's no time to proclaim our greatness, to assert the right to be a leader, or to command others. Servants do not strut, but behave meekly. They only take such acts as the true master commands. Turn back to DNC section 121. There's a couple of verses there that um, I want to suggest, particularly if you view the man and the woman together as one. Read these verses as if it's descriptive of the one, which is you and your wife. Many are called, but few are chosen. This is beginning at verse 40 of section 121. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Within your family, within your marriage, are you and your wife learning to use persuasion? Within your marriage... Are you and your husband learning to use gentleness in dealing with one another? Are the two of you together facing one another in all of the difficulties that come as a result of being married? Are you facing that together in meekness? Do you find that in all the relationship uh, troubles, turmoils, and challenges, what predominates is kindness? Is there a search for understanding that results in pure knowledge when it comes to a dilemma? Look at verse 37. That they may be conferred upon us, it is true, but when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, the Spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, amen to the priest or to the authority of that man. It's been my observation that so soon as the Spirit of the Lord withdraws, that quickly will another spirit step in to assure you that you're right, you should be vindicated, that you ought to proceed on in the arrogance of your heart, to feel yourself justified and vindicated. There are false spirits that go about, but there are no better an audience to receive the whisperings of those false spirits than it is the abusers who, having grieved the spirit and caused it to withdraw, accept then counsel from yet another spirit that says, you're right, press on. Well done, you're good, you're right. You'll be vindicated. This is all God's work, and you're a great man because you're engaged in God's work. Do not back down, do not relent. Forget about persuasion. You should never be long-suffering. You should make those under your rule suffer. They should yield to your rule. There is no place for meekness. We believe in a God of strength, a God of power, a God whose work can be done despite the frailties of man. There is no need for men to be meek. And it's kind in the end, after all, to punish and to force and to coerce because we have a good objective in mind. All of the lies and all of the deceit that led in turn to Catholicism falling into the abyss that it fell into are presently in play with spirits 
that worked this out long ago, taking the restoration of the gospel as yet another opportunity in which to whisper in once the Spirit is withdrawn. So, does your marriage help you avoid covering your sins? Does your marriage, because you're never going to solve this problem in the community until you first begin to solve it within the walls of your own home. You're never going to have Zion that exists somewhere among a community until first that community is composed of those who have a marriage that is in the image of God. Does your marriage help you avoid gratifying your pride? Does it help pull down your vain ambition? Is your ambition to exalt the two of you rather than the one of you? Does it bring you time and time again to not exercise control, but to respect the freedom to choose? Your kids are going to make mistakes. It's not your job to force them to not make the mistake. It's your job to counsel them and to let them have the experience by which your counsel makes sense and is vindicated. You hope the mistakes that they make are not too serious. But even if they're serious and they involve lifelong struggles, it's their right to choose and it's your obligation to teach and to persuade and then to rejoice when they return after they're tired of filling their bellies with the husks that the pigs are fed. It's your job to go and greet them and put a robe on their shoulder and put a ring on their hand and to kill the fatted calf. It's not your job to beat them and to chain them to the farm so they can't go away and behave foolishly. They need to know that your bonds of love towards them are stronger than death itself. They need to know that they will endure in your heart into eternity. And not only your children, but one another because we all make mistakes. Do not exercise dominion. Do not exercise compulsion. Exercise long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, and kindness. Some of the biggest disasters come when you do not give people the right to choose freely and you attempt to coerce them. Be wise, be prudent. Be someone that they would respect and they would listen to. Now, it's clear when it comes to the gospel that the gospel has as its standard absolutes. Doctrine and Covenants 1, section 31 says, For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And if that's not a troubling enough idea, then if you go to King Benjamin in Mosiah 4, verse 29, it says, this is King Benjamin talking, and finally, I cannot tell you all the things whereby ye may commit sin, for there are divers ways and means, even so many that I cannot number them. So there's an infinite supply of opportunities with which to commit sin, and God cannot look upon that with any degree of allowance. It's sort of a formidable challenge for us to look at. But there is a divine purpose underlying that. And that divine purpose is to bring us in humility to God, recognizing that there's a gulf between who and what we are and what it is that is expected of us in order to be truly holy. The foregoing excerpts are taken from a Glossary of Gospel Terms, Meekness, Restoration Edition, page 160. Denver's talk entitled Zion Will Come, given near Moab, Utah, on April 10, 2016. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number 6, entitled Zion, given in Grand Junction, Colorado, on April 12, 2014. Denver's talk, given at the Chiasmus Conference in American Fork, Utah, on September 18, 2010. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number 8, entitled A Broken Heart, given in Las Vegas, Nevada, on July 25, 2014. His conference talk entitled The Doctrine of Christ, given in Boise, Idaho, on September 11, 2016. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number 9, entitled Marriage and Family, given in St. George, Utah, on July 26, 2014. 
and Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number 10, entitled Preserving the Restoration, given in Mesa, Arizona, on September 9, 2014. For information about upcoming Christian fellowship conferences, meetings, and events, please visit restorationarchives.com. There you will also find a complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers available to download free of charge. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.